artistic director of Dancing Earth, artistic director and choreographer, and um, I am Métis, the affiliation. Can you tell me a little bit about Dancing Earth and what it is? You're the founder, is that correct? That's what yes. you said? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dancing Earth is an indigenous contemporary dance company, and I think we've been going as Dancing Earth for about 11 years, and it's a really a I call it a con- constellation of mm-hmm. intertribal artists and um, primarily dance and performing arts. Um, but I've found that in this upcoming generation of Indigenous artists that there's a lot of multidisciplinary, a lot of you know people who are carrying a number of different gifts from visual art to farming to basket weaving to music. And I think it's a healthy sign of a more integrative um, way of living on earth, which is closer really to our ancestral ways of um, less about um, a sort of specialization that can only allow one to, to express in one way, but more about everything that you do is done artfully and from a cultural perspective. So that's made the creative process really interesting because um, people will be contributing in a number of different ways to, to bring the works into into life. And have you always been into performance-based art throughout your life? You said 11 years with Dancing Earth, but where where did your journey begin? Actually, now that you mention it, my journey began when I was um, very young. As soon as I could pick up a pencil, I was drawing and I was writing and um, really creating an imaginary world for myself that was probably um, a, a place of safety and inspiration in a more... The, the chaotic world that was around me at a sort of unstable um, kind of situations for a lot of my, I was going to say young life, but maybe a lot of my life. Mm. And so this um, inner world of imagination and dreaming was um, very potent to me. And I've, I loved creating these, these story realms and um, sometimes with me inside of them and sometimes these imaginary characters and drawing them and, and writing of them. And, but I remember the day when it's almost like my pencil became stuck because suddenly it became, it became two dimensional for me. And instead of branching out and becoming a sculptress or something 3D like that, I felt that I wanted to embody, I wanted to be inside of those stories and um, sort of, I guess, act them out, um, which had a sort of dancerly form because I wasn't that comfortable with, with speaking. And right around that time, um, I heard, I think I was maybe nine years old, I heard, um, let's see, it would have been radio or record at that time, of uh, two different tracks that were played back-to-back. One was Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet, and then the next one was Ravel's Bolero. Mm. And I remember the feeling of hearing those tracks and then feeling what it would be like to dance that music like I, could, I had a very kinetic sensation and it was even like extending all the way to the tips of my toes. So that first thing that drew me in was, was ballet and, you know, that sense of that stretch and that, you know, that really um, a sense of liftedness as you, you know, drive into the ground with that toe, that liftedness and uh, like really when I think of it through an indigenous lens now, it's like really articulating that space between earth and sky that humans are poised between, but like lengthening it out. And I'm not surprised now that I was so drawn to the elegance and grace and formalism of classical ballet, because uh, again, um, it created this space of perfection in a much more um, <laughs> scary world. Uh, and so that, that was my first love with classical ballet. And, uh, I, I just was, I was not particularly gifted for it. I was not, I didn't have the, like, you know, in, in many countries that have really 
fine ballet companies. Um, actually, where where ballet evolved is from Europe. So if you consider it as an ethnic dance form, um, like all 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 dances come from a culture, so it comes from the culture of Europe. And these days, the the countries that have the very fine ballet companies, they actually pick the children from, you know, age seven or six or eight, and they measure the limbs, they measure the um, amount of rotation and extension, and that's how they find the perfect physical specimens. I think people might be able to relate to it more, like from, like, Olympic gymnasts or something. And yes, it's 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 um, it's sorting the seeds and pulling out the the ones that are best fitted for dance. So if I had been in any of those countries, I would not have danced because I was not um, I was not well equipped for it. So the fact that I had a career in first in classical ballet, then in um, modern ballet, then in modern dance, is a sign of the sheer determination and force of will, really to to um, become what I had I envisioned for myself. So I worked like a beast, and people will say that that's pretty characteristic of me. Um, I, I'm very uh, like a dog with a bone when I have a discrimination about something. That That's really how Dancing Earth has continued on. Um, and, and then balancing that ballet world was the powwow dance world, which was very, very separate. It was in the summer times. It was, um, you know, like ballet is how I made my living. And then mentioned modern dance um, was how I made my living in New York City. And then for powwows, I wasn't as drawn to competition. I think uh, I, I think it was after a summer where I had won first place in women's traditional the whole summer. But I felt the sort of feelings of, um, oh, you know, sometimes there's hurt feelings from other people that are in the circle. And I was like, oh, I'm not in this to to hurt feelings or I'm here to build relations. And I spoke to, um, my traditional grandmother who had gifted me with my regalia and, um, spoke to her about that. And she thought it was entirely appropriate. So she said, well, you can dance with the women in the women's circle and then you can take off your number because they give you a number if you're competing and place it on the ground. But that way you'll at least to get to dance with the women. So that's generally how I approach it as a sort of, um, like I said, relationship building and regenerating kind of dance. worlds were very separate um and i i i they were separate because that's what was being really asked of 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 culture the time was to keep things very close and private and there didn't seem to be any good models of great fusions that were happening with the more um i guess the word might be commercial dance or outward facing dance theatrical dance there wasn't um even if there were good things happening, people didn't know about them. And so it was regarded with suspicion, and I totally understood all that. And so I was happy to keep them separate. But this thing was growing inside of me of like, what if, or, you know, if only, um, partly because of the richness of the culture that I felt could be translated it metaphorically or even more in distinct storytelling fashion through the body in ways that I had never seen done. Um, and I, I have spoken about how it was actually a battle with cancer, um, uh, 13 years ago that, mm. uh, really propelled me into understanding that I had a distinctive purpose on earth and to bring something to this world that didn't exist before that. And be, I, I did eventually end up meeting indigenous contemporary choreographers that had been um, creating work in the decades before me. Um, Rosalie Jones is the great mother of uh, what she was would call native modern dance. I would say she was at IIA in the blossoming time. And then Raul Trujillo was from New Mexico. Um, up in Canada, he was working with Alejandro Roseria from Colombia and Renee Highway, um, a Cree. So these three men who look—they—they they resembled brothers. Um, they were coming from the North, Central, South American, or I can't wait. I think I'm getting it all mixed up. But they were all um, bringing this sense of 
global indigeneity to their work, very, very, very progressive. And even though they weren't my mentors as a young dancer, now that I'm established myself, I just like to look towards the people who are really carving out the paths, um, knowing how hard it was for them at the time and how they just fiercely went forward, <laughs> regardless of whether or not they had sanction of elders or, you know, supportive audiences. They just were following their their deep dream vision and, and moving forward with it. And so I, I look at that and that can give me um, some strength when I'm encountering challenges. Hmm. Um, but I also have... Uh, I think I've been one of those people that grand grandmothers especially always take in. I was born like a little old grandmother. I actually was born feet first. Yes. I, was, um, I think they call it a breech birth when you come out feet first. And I was like two weeks late. So I was really wrinkled like a little prune. So it's like I came out this little little grandmother feet first. And um, so I've always been... Um, sort of mentored by these wonderful grandmothers of many different nations, actually. Um, I know people who sort of uh, took me under their wing um, from different tribal heritages. And I, I, I always felt like I wanted to respect stories that were shared with me. And eventually, those I was asked to for some of those stories to be shared with the wider world because it was felt that you know, well, first of all, could it inspire Native youth to um, retain interest in culture? And um, then next, in more recent years, because of the severe environmental um, degradation that's happening around the world, cultural and environmental, of course, going hand in hand, because one is the other mm-hmm. in, from an Indigenous viewpoint, um, because of the, the, the apocalypse that is being faced or has been faced by so many um, First Nations, there's been a continued um, push to be like, you know what, it's actually not time to keep those stories so close. It's time to let the people know because we need this sort of critical mass to try to expand what we're doing and and make the changes that are, are needed for us to live in balance on the earth. And it's it's been so interesting this generosity of these elders to to consider that when as you know for for decades and decades there's so much that has to be remaining close, and and severe repercussions for that anything from from massacre or you know getting a limb chopped off to mm. um, you know just just the thing of like dances being outlawed. So until 1980, until the Religious Freedom Act, dances were outlawed because, you know, especially if they had a, quote, religious um, significance, which if you're living in a world where religion and food and child rearing and, you know, (laughs) everything you do is all interrelated because that's how things are in in a world that is reflecting nature in that every system is connected, then everything is connected. And you can pretend that it's not so that you can continue dancing um, and then, you know, run the risk of, okay, at least we're retaining the physical form, but we might start to, you know, those stories, if they're hidden for long enough, will start to kind of blur a bit. Mm -hmm. And I like to think that at least if the physicality is retained, we can actually enter that physicality and find those truths that are actually beyond words, those truths that are, it's like the words before there were words, when it's pure sound, that that, um, purity of what, like something that comes to your mind and becomes something, becomes thought, becomes a word, becomes action, becomes um, uh, creation. It's going to what is that pure energy versus the specificity so, you know, at least retaining the, those dances, you, you might have a chance of retaining the essence of that knowledge. But at any rate, with all those things um, really jeopardizing life itself, of course, there's reason to keep it close. And, you know, in different different times, these things sort of come into a trend and might be... Uh, might be appropriated, might be misunderstood, um, might be borrowed uh, with with sort of good intent, but not knowing that that you 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 can't really borrow those things out of context, or it's you know it's just not good form. Although I I must say that I feel like in art we are trained to do all that, whether it's performing arts or um, visual arts, particularly from a Western perspective. I've literally heard. Um, in in dance or drama classes, like you know, take from anything you can, 
So wow. you do, yes, you develop characters by seeing someone on the street and you imitate them and, and dance is definitely, you know, for the first eight to 10 years, it's a mimicry form. You follow a form and you try to mimic it, especially in the more classical forms and um, classical, not meaning uh, just classical ballet, but any form that's based on um, the discipline of repeating a technique, even martial arts, you know, you sort of, you're following a master and you, you repeat, repeat, repeat. So it's based on that, that mimicry until eventually maybe eight to 10 years into it, you start to find yourself in that. Um, you know, I think it might be less of an issue if there wasn't so much that had been taken already. Mm. You know, I think there's a lot more um, chance for generosity and for that sense of giveaway when, mm. when you have so little to hang on to. And I think just looking at the, you know, percentage of Native Americans in the United States, you know, being a, a more narrow percent than, let's say, of Maori in New Zealand or Canada, uh, First Nations in Canada, um, you start to see the different patterns of, of you know, how much it, it feels appropriate to the people to share. Um, when I'm up in Canada, there's many... Um, of my wonderful colleagues who teach, for example, maybe powwow dance classes to which everyone is invited. And what they say is, well, how else can people learn how to behave themselves <laughs> and, you know, what to do right and, and what not to do that is, you know, offensive if we don't show them. So not only just showing movements, but showing the protocols and the context. Whereas here, I think it's pretty much not too many people feel comfortable teaching powwow dance to non-Native people. And I can understand both views especially when you put them into the context of the nation that you're coming from. Eventually, I, I um, started to create a form. And when I say I, I think it's just allowing myself to get out of the way and mm. to be a, like a holding space, carrying a bowl um, that can welcome people in. And so the dancers often are, you know, they're, they're coming from all kinds of different backgrounds in terms of dance or movement, martial arts and break dance and powwow have been big sources for me. And also dancers that come from maybe more of the ballet, modern jazz um, background. And when we get into a room, I think the most important thing is to just make everyone feel comfortable and feel like they are acknowledged and that they're a part of the circle. And that starts really from trying to peel away this layer that I would call colonization and oppression that has contributed to so many people feeling not enough. So they might feel that they're not, they're, you know, they like this full blood and quantum, this and that has really um, eroded people's confidence um, in de definitely in um, my generation and, uh, you know, people a little older, a little younger than me, that was a big, big part of the conversation. Or on the other side, if people are coming from a more um, a background that's more continuous in their traditions, sometimes they feel like not enough because they they don't know how to be in a city situation, for example. Like so, they feel like they're not as equipped to what's considered the modern world, and just every different kind of not enough from. Uh, you know, the typical dance, not tall enough, not thin enough, or not a dancer enough, or, you know, oh, I only break dance, so I'm not trained. Uh, but if someone's break dancing a couple hours a night on a cardboard <laughs> box, so that's some pretty tough training there. You know, that's, 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 I, I respect that. And so I'd say the first, you know, few years of someone working with me, and when I say years, it's not continuous. I, I, I pull together projects and I I fight for fair living wage to bring dancers together. So unfortunately, that means that we're not working every single day where I w can imagine how that growth could be so you know strong because when you work intensively like that, you really move forward. So we come together for projects and um, I really want people to feel empowered. I want them to feel confident and good because really when they go away from Dancing Earth at whatever age, whether it's after a year or 10 years, um, whatever they go on to do, 
I want them to feel like leaders because they are. And in fact, many of them have gone on to do such amazing things. I mean, I think I think it's this year where I really um, scooped up that good medicine and said, wow, there's people that, uh, you know, I might have, you know, given a little push through the door or opened a door for them. And then they've gone on to exceed, you know, far exceed me. So I think that's a sign of a good leader when you can see the people who you've helped um, give a little push to, to see them far, you know, outstrip you in yeah. their brightness. And, you know, I, I, it's so many stories. I mean, they're all doing such amazing things, whether that's, you know, being a, a, a wonderful parent or, you know, teaching. Um, I've got an amazing uh, young woman who is at uh, the Stanford Law School for environmental uh, protection, especially native rights. Like, you know, they're, they're just doing amazing things in the world. And for a lot, some of them, for sure, I think Dancing Earth created that welcoming sense of identity that nobody could take away from them. That you're like, yes, you are, and trust your instincts and, you know, trust what's inside of you. It's sort of like when I was um, mentioning those amazing pioneers of indigenous contemporary dance it that was what it was about listening to that that dream space because it's not only just your dream space but it's that you've been able to clear things aside clear your ego aside to channel in you know we could call it ancestral dreaming or futurist dreaming but something that <laughs> yes. yeah like it's something that's applicable and relevant to the generations behind you and the generations in front of you mm. so that's a lot of what my dance process is about and how that translates in a room means that again it's not about me showing a movement and then asking people to mimic because that doesn't allow them to bring their own special gifts to it. and you know I'm I'm an older dancer when I'm doing something for a you know a, a with an 18-year-old breakdancer, surely they've got something, some really unique way of taking the information that I've sketched out and turning it into something raw and dynamic of their own. And that's what I'm interested in. So I'm interested in what is it that makes everyone different, that makes everyone special. And of course, that makes for a very interesting uh, form of unison dancing. I think um, many people who are used to seeing um, all, all kinds of different dance expect unison to be and people doing the same things at the same time, and preferably <laughs> with the same body type. And I'm really interested in in uh, in altering that by showing how can we be united and be diverse. I love the way you've interpreted Indigenous contemporary dance encompassing so much more than just the actual movement. You know, it's like a, a way of empowering yourself. And I think that's really important to share with the audience. And I wanted to ask you about the other side of it, the the side that's not creative, that you have to go through. I know you don't want to talk about, but I think it's an important reality that our generation needs to grab onto and understand how to navigate. You weren't necessarily taught. You're like learning as you go. <laughs> or not learning as the case may be. Um, sure. So, yeah. Talk about that for a little bit. Well, I think... As a dancer, because we work so hard and we train so long to finally get our first dance jobs, and then we would just rehearse so tirelessly. And so that's our world. That's all we know, and we think we're the hardest working people in the world, and we certainly are right up there. But um, it was the moment that I wasn't able to dance and and um, began choreographing, although I'm dancing again now, but I was you know, encountering health challenges and couldn't dance myself. So... If I can't do, couldn't dance in my own body, then I had to translate these dreams under other bodies, and that becomes choreography. And then if you want to put choreography onto a stage, you have to assemble a, dancers and um, work with them in a, you know, beyond the steps. And I think that's called directing or creating a company. And then if you want to share it with the world on a stage with people coming to see, and that becomes producing. And 
I think all I really wanted to do is sort of uh, maybe maybe dance with my 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 peers, my people, my colleagues. Um, but now I'm wearing these hats, <laughs> um, which also in, and then uh, to produce you need funds. So in order to keep that going, then I have to really you know sharpen up my teaching and lecturing skills and. Uh, join different panels and symposiums. So I'm wearing a lot. Oh, yes. And then if you want them to wear clothing, um, there's <laughs> costumes. And sometimes if you're lucky, you can hire someone to make them. Otherwise, you're making them yourself. You're washing them yourself. And then if we go on tour, uh, oh, who books the tickets? Oh, <laughs> you know, who writes the kind of... So I'm doing all that. And I don't think I'm particularly... You know, I don't have... It's, it's, I'm not gifted in all of them, that's for sure. Um, I'm writing grants. And uh, I, it's funny, I, I, I think I've, I've gotten so many rejections in the last two years, and it's quite serious because anytime someone says no, for whatever reason, maybe it's, you know, amazing people uh, applied and you were the, you know, 19th most amazing out of 18, <laughs> but it really shuts down the dreams of an entire generation because the dancers that I work with, there are a few other indigenous contemporary companies in the in the um, continent, but not too many of them are, well, I don't know if any of them prioritize the hiring of indigenous people. And if they do, they're looking for, you know, very, very highly trained dancers that could match, uh, you know, dancers in any dance class. And I'm actually less interested in that because I'm as, inter well, I'm, I'm interested in that, but I'm also looking at like, who are people in the community what can this dance do to impact them and their people? And that's as much of a resume as, you know, that, that, that adds to um, why someone would be an important, I would call them cultural artist ambassador, mm -hmm. not just a dancer as a puppet kind of thing. So whenever we get turned down, it's really taking away these opportunities to, to, to build a new generation of indigenous contemporary dance for it to be fair living wage. Because if the dancers aren't dancing for me, they're usually working, you know, three or four other jobs. And, um, you know, they're, so they're not growing as a dancer. They're not in rehearsals. And you do that for enough months, as like in a dancer, it's like dog years, you know, you take away, <laughs> you don't dance for six months, it's like six, 60 years. So I do take it quite personally. I, I know the work we're doing is extraordinary. I've seen the changes. I, you know, I, I've seen people that, you know, I've gone back to places where we've performed, for example. And I'm going to start with performance because I think that's the one that's the least likely to be funded. It happens that our teaching overlaps with the area of social environmental justice that's very impactful. And we're, we're all great teachers, amazingly. Mm -hmm. And so we're very happy and to be able to be generous and share that um, first with our communities. So um, one would think that would be eminently grantable. And, um, but performance is still considered something that's sort of not as functional, not as much of a a grant that's uh, being in, put in place to solve the societal problems that are caused by a system. Like there's grant money out there for that, but they don't consider performance to be a part of that. And that's a distinct um, shift from indigenous worldview, which places music and dance at the center as a, um, functional rituals for transformation. Always has been and always will be because it's a, it's a human truth. You dance and sing things into shift. And, and I think a, a great example of that is the Idle No More movement. Mm. So we are finally like here at the, at uh, the, the timing of, of victory against the, the pipeline. And I do not discount that native people were a huge part of that and idle no more, bringing people to malls and taking over big public spaces with huge round dances. That is a factor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, constantly when I'm writing for these uh, grants about social change or environmental change, I do think there's a sneaking suspicion of like, well, how does dance really, you know, make a difference? And because there aren't quantifiable, anticipated, deliverable outcomes, which is the magic of arts. It's that it's not quantifiable. You cannot anticipate the outcomes. They are beyond what you can anticipate because when you shift from 
you know, when you create that aha of consciousness of, you know, maybe someone's coming to the mall for the first time, they've never seen 4,000 Native people all at once singing like, oh my gosh, they're here. And they're telling, you know, there's there's stories that are being shared that awaken people's consciousness. I, I'd say hearts, let's say emotions and consciousness. Um to start making these shifts. Yeah, that's the magic of, of theater. And by trying to sort of break it down into something linear really weakens it. And and we it's hard to find languaging for it. It's hard to be like, oh, okay, well, let me see. You know, every three-year-old is probably going to stop polluting now, you know, <laughs> because I had one great example of a three-year-old who stopped polluting. So based on that, I'm going to take the percentage out. You know, I mean, it's literally what <laughs> it seems to me Grant Speak is like. So I think there's... Um, a pretty big system shift that is creating a glass ceiling for artists, number one, for artists of color, number two, and for artists uh, who are rural. So rural artists of color. And then add another of that um, as you know, native tribal peoples, um, especially those working in collectives. It's amazing what, um, how, what you have to do to uh, speak the language of, of, of grant speak. So there's more than one grant that I've been rejected for that say, well, it's not enough. We don't find out who you are. It's always the we. You need, you're always talking about the we. We want to hear the genius, the I. Oh, and, gosh. And, <laughs> and I was like, wow, as a leader from the cultural, you know, positioning that I have actually from many of my lineages, that would be so rude and so you know, false and superficial for a leader to be all about the I. And, you know, occasionally I've got to try to, like, put on a different hat and write from that perspective, like, I, Rulan, will now create this with the people. And it just feels so rude. But, you know, those I've gotten a little further with those grants, I must say. <laughs> and, and it's that, I mean, I often when I get turned down, turned down, turned down from these, these different funding sources, I think, well, I think it's because we're doing something so cutting edge slash so ancient in its ancestral wisdom and truth that it has yet to be recognized. So there's a good thing in that of being, you know, not, not being part of the status quo. Although, you know, you have to pick yourself up from the ground with the scrapes <laughs> in your knees, because again, what it means is the dancers don't get paid. And if the dancers don't get paid, then they're either making huge hardships and sacrifices in order to serve the many, many, the demand for the work. So whether it's um, youth on native reservations or health and wellness conferences or universities or uh, K through 12 systems, the title, whole Title VII, um, which is uh, Native students in public, education, public school education, or festivals or theaters or museums or galleries, constant, constant, beautiful invitations. And um, we have to turn on many of them mm -hmm. because, uh, well, I, I am quite committed to fair living wage. I think of artists doing something functional and needed in society and just like plumbing or anything else, they should be compensated fairly for it. And that's a stickling point. Um, it's also a sticking point in my organization. Um, I would love to have staff. I think I would, I can only imagine where my work could be if my my energy and focus was exclusively on the artistic and the educational and the cultural. But I've um, held back on staffing because the model, um, the way even nonprofits are set up, um, is that the artists get paid um, at a certain pay rate, let's say hourly or something, whereas administration gets a different pay rate. Um, and I, I was like, well, I, you know, I think that's perfectly fine. If we, if someone needs 75 an hour, that's great, but we need to be able to fundraise so that the dancers also get that much because even a 25-year-old dancer could have been dancing already 20 years. So they've definitely put in their time um, to deserve, to deserve um, you know, an equal rate to it, an administrator. And, and you know, I think administrators are great. They're skilled and they, they bring so much, as do dancers. So why can't we have... Um, more equity across mm. the way. And so there's a lot of things where, when I get to this point as a leader where I feel like, okay, I've done so much work um, that, you know, there's not really much more that can be done on the, as far as like being creative and resourceful and working with minimum resources and making partnerships with people to have in-kind trade of things. But really we're working with a system that's, let's say, narrow or let's say broken. Mm -hmm. So without becoming an advocate for systemic change, whether that has to do with racism or classism 
or um, all kinds of isms. I mean, I, I think one of the interesting things is when we get turned down for what are, might be called, it's not compelling or that the standard isn't quite there. I mean, it's sort of code words for professional. And professional to me is a code word for um, meeting a Western standard. And Western, I don't even know what East or West is. Like West is California, I guess. I don't know. But um, let's say Eurocentric um, mm. or let's say any other cultural system that isn't the one of the, the choreographer whose work is being being decided, whether they're West African or from India, if they're or or native, if if the work is coming from a specific cultural viewpoint, then it's not coming from another cultural viewpoint. <laughs> and there's a real value system on which ones are considered to be um, more strong aesthetically. But I, I'm I'm looking at all this a lot right now because I'm like, well, how much of it is a matter of taste? Or, you know, I, I think a lot of um, there's a suddenly in vogue for community engaged arts because partly because people aren't going to theaters really. So it's like, well, if you get the, get the community involved, then they've got to come because, you know, they've got to be. I mean, that's my very cynical way of, of saying that's that's more not from the artist perspective. I think there's many artists who genuinely um, see the benefit of, of of working within their community and. Um, unfortunately, those the the judgment on that work um, is it, it's it's considered you know very different from seeing um, highly trained dancers perform. Um, it looks different, and both are very very impactful. So, but in the end, it's often not the community work that's chosen. Um, but I think in any any community members who've been involved with artwork. Uh, performing arts when it's not their, their the primary thing that they do always talk about the transformation of it. I mean, it literally is a ritual like coming in and, and building your own ritual as a community. What would a positive resolution for this grants conundrum be like in an ideal world how can you see this kind of old system being fixed so that the money can go to the artist i think it's part of just equity in in the united states there has power and resources so it's not only arts you know it's healthcare it's housing it's you know the um, resources in the hands of few um, when there's so many that um, need and deserve it. And I think part of it is really modeling for the world what a creative, equitable world could look and feel like. I think that's one of the reasons why um, pe people have always flocked to creative centers. And that's not always cities. Sometimes it's been cities in certain areas, and sometimes it's been small towns. But, and sometimes it's neighborhoods that were considered kind of less fashionable. And then the artists move in and then it becomes hip and interesting. And, and the next thing you know, that's cafe. I mean, it's, it's you know, gentrification is, is um, problematic as well because it can push out original people in the neighborhood. But what does the combination of, you know, let, let's, let's just call it a neighborhood, a neighborhood where there's um, diverse people or um, a strong cultural, original culture there, for example, and that creative wellspring that happens. I mean, my brother-in-law teaches in the Mission District of San Francisco. He teaches dance. And, you know, every week they're out there with the dancer, folklorico dancers protesting the next big high rise. And, um, you know, he has so many students on scholarship, but the minute he needs to have like a, a dance floor built, there's 20 dads there with hammers. That thing is built in, you know, two hours in one afternoon. Wow. And that's that's community equity. That's like, okay, whether or not people can pay, they are committed and invested and they can make things happen. Um, plenty of exa examples of that at Burning Man, which many people consider to be one of the great creative centers, al although it's temporary um, mm. in, in the world. And it has to do with creating work that is not, um, you know, it's not money-based. You can't make money from it. You can't charge tickets. It's what you would, you know, create as well as in a survival situation. 
so it's so funny when people talk about how, you know, their great experiences at Burning Man. I'm like, you know, I've gone a few times and I'd be like, okay, survival skills out in the desert, uh, creating things without money. <laughs> oh, it sounds like what I do all the time. <laughs> You're all story of my life. <laughs> yeah. So I, but I think when people have, I mean, there's so many people that have gone to Burning Man and felt their lives changed, um, and a commitment towards, towards living a vital creative life. And I think that's where really, where most people want to be, where we really want to like, we're sort of born with that interest in creating. And if that becomes acknowledged and rather than a truth that is swept away, then creativity is, you know, one, the, the first thing that would be, um, I don't even want to use funded, but supported, um, valued, encouraged, respected in a community, in a society, in a nation. And creativity really, it rewards itself. Like once you prioritize creativity, then yes, then you've got, you know, the incredible um, inventions that happen. And these days we are in, in past, we thought of inventions as, you know, more maybe things that are have to do with, um, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is maybe the innovations for this next half of my life that I'll see will be more about efficient energy use, you know, things that are not creating more stuff to be thrown away and disposed of and replaced. But how can we, uh, and it's not and sometimes about returning to older values, but sometimes it's about um, embracing new inventions that, you know, I've heard about all these things that, uh, you know, cars that could run on solar power and these things that have actually already been invented. And, you know, really prioritizing those things. So I think it's part of, it's, it's actually all connected. Um, this, uh, this prioritization of creativity and the joy and the well-being that it brings to a community is also connected to, uh, like, is it something that is, is exciting and beautiful and that you're attracted to just for yourself? Or how good is it for your family, for your neighbors? for the, for the birds, for the bees, you know, like <laughs> that sense of connectedness. And I know that I feel that sense of connectedness through my dance. It's not only to myself and to the people in the room and to, um, the witnesses that might be called audiences, uh, and the non-human witnesses, the trees, and the I feel it through my dance. And that's what I've devoted my life to is to be able to share that experience with others and watch their lives become transformed with it. And with all this giving, you know, with all of this selflessness and the we versus the I, you as a person still exist. And I wanted to talk about self-care and how do you find a way to still continue to find the joy and the creativity and the inspiration within this whirlwind of all of these things that you're balancing um, I think it's a very important thing for people to learn how to do, especially right now, because we're, we are facing so many intense things in our world. How do you do self-care? Mm. This is probably not the best season to ask me that question, but, <laughs> but I will echo that, um, especially this year, I've actually been called into uh, several situations, um, some of them where we didn't know what the plan was till I got there and then, you know, listening to elders and leaders. Um, but in some cases it was planned far in advance that the self-care for leaders is absolutely crucial and necessary um, for sustainability. So, you know, I've been part of all these cohorts for creativity and how do we make a more creative in New Mexico? And what are the tactics and strategies? And like, we've got all the creative people we need right here. We just have to take care of them and <laughs> give them space and time to take care of themselves. And that's true of New Mexico. That's true of our native nations. That's true of, you know, there's, there's a lot out there. But instead of coming up with these new templates and strategies, um, I think it's re really making sure that those people who are, have already dedicated their lives to it and to the ones that are up and coming, that they will be um, able to, to do, their, do the work that they're doing. And it, it, to me, it has to do with um, reciprocity. Mm -hmm. uh, I always think of, like, what is reciprocity? I use this uh, metaphor and a, a movement uh, that is about breathing in, receiving, exhale, breathing out, and giving. So when you inhale, you're taking in the oxygen that's been created for you by the plant world. And when you exhale, you're giving back out a clean carbon dioxide for that plant world. So we're always in this reciprocity, mm -hmm. particularly with the plant world. <sighs> and I do it with arm gestures to help me remember, because that's how I remember is through, through movement. 
And so the self-care has to do with um, considering that everything is not about being active and expanding, that there's the times to um, contract, to release, to um, exhale, Mm. to rest. And sometimes it's proportionate. I don't think I rest as much as I am active, (laughs) but I do take that time. And when I am active, uh, when I, because you probably know my schedule, I'm out on the road like three weeks of every month, which is no small feat. I mean, <laughs> very intense. Yeah, it takes incredible stem. And I look at myself like, how is it that I'm doing this? I'm doing it because when I'm out there, whether that means out there in Espanola or out there in, uh, in uh, Alaska, I am constantly humbled by what I'm receiving as well as what I'm giving. So if you're in that state of understanding what you're, what, what's being given to you, and, and that's not often always in the form of funds, but, um, but in the forms of, uh, um, you know, lived cultural resources, um, the sharing of stories, the sharing of freshly caught salmon, like, you know, that might be the best thing that someone can give you. And if you're tasting it and knowing what that is and the stories behind it, and, you know, that you're, in that state all the time, then you are receiving simultaneously to giving. And so that's how I do it because I'm on a constant like <laughs> kind of spin. But even when I create that motion, I'm creating a circular motion or like I'm waving my arms up and down in a winged motion. There's up and there's down. And in order to fly, you're in that, you're, you're doing both of those things. Same thing with over circle and under circle. To create a full revolution, you're doing both. So sometimes we think, oh, I'm spinning so fast, I'm spinning. But if, if during the process of doing that, you're aware of what, when the over circle is happening, when the under circle is happening, then you might be aware it's not like a straight line where you're just going forward in space. So part of it is building in the rest time and part of it is being aware of when you're being given something, even though you may not know it <laughs> on first glance. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's what I can say about self-care. And um, I mean, actually, I think for me, the practice of the dance itself, when I finally get to do it after the grant is written and the travel is booked and the contract's done and I'm in that room, I'm finally able to move. Um, realize that's, that's the gift. And yeah. Um, you know, I, I love to be in a room moving with other people as just a reminder of us as animals and plants. We like to be in diverse, diverse company. You know, the, we like to have that, that, uh, that exchange of breath with others. <laughs> beginning you asked me about indigenous contemporary or you asked me about dancing earth and I described it as indigenous contemporary dance and then I proceeded to deconstruct dance which in my world could include planting seeds having a potluck you know cutting up old t-shirts to make costumes and that's actually all part of um, dance and performance to me <laughs> like a sort of continuous link that uh, begins in the body and then expands to every other expression. And so with the word contemporary, I guess I, I started to call what I was doing contemporary um, because of a lot of uh, ownership or with traditional dancers over what is traditional. Mm. And so I wanted to respect that. But um, in more recent years, there's been a lot of pushback about why do we have to call things contemporary or traditional? If they're coming from a cultural root, maybe they're just cultural dance and some forms are older and some forms are yet to be invented but they're being invented to create um, relevance and commentary on the times that we're in so this idea about commentary on the times we're in is where I um, use the word contemporary so con tiempo I think might be the breakdown Mm. in Spanish or Latin so um, there's certain dances that I create that I feel like are specific to where we are, like the walking at the edge of water, which spoke to hydrofracking, it spoke to damming um, from very specific tribal stories that were shared and then ex- interpreted on stage. Um, the, that that 
work, I hope it doesn't live on as a masterwork forever. I hope that it speaks to a certain era when humans were so foolish as to think that they could um, control or own or dominate water. I, I hope in my lifetime that we mm. see that shift. And then there might be work that I create that has more of a timeless quality that where we're, we're sort of embodying these ancestral essences uh, that are relevant a thousand years before and a thousand years to the future, this pure spirit of humanity on earth. And so then people are asking, well, was that modern dance? Is that contemporary dance? And I don't know what to call it. Sometimes <laughs> I feel like it's like the ancient, yeah, like the, so many of my works have the, the a character called ancestor in there. Sometimes it's water ancestor. Sometimes it's ancestor frog. Um, but it's that sort of, that ancient flow, you could call it spirit, you could call it um, the, the carbon of which we are all made that comes from the um, dying stars of the galaxy that creates all of us and this interconnected um, material of carbon. Yeah. Um, so that kind of essence there. And then the word indigenous. So this is the most... Um, I, 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 when I started using the word, I had, I had just come down from Canada where they were, I, I suddenly became aware that there was an Aboriginal contemporary dance movement and it was so exciting. Um, but I was using the word um, Indigenous and what is that? And, you know, there's a lot of questions like, well, but that doesn't reflect the nation to nation sovereign relationships that we have, which I respect, but there's especially with blood quantum, that that relationship is going to be bred out by a certain point. And then do we stop becoming who we are? So I like the fact that indigenous wasn't defined. It's almost like everyone gets to define what indigenous is and um, or everyone and no one can have their their um, opinion of what that is. And I actually look at, the, the, you know, different, um, different definitions, um, including like of land, like coming from a land... And so I consider that, and then I think about, um, well, there's a, a lot of, uh, you know, here in the Southwest and up in the um, Northeast among the Iroquois and in some of the Southeastern larger nations, this real sense of specific land base uh, of planting people. Mm. So people who don't move so much, like the mountain is in a particular direction at all times, and then... Um, in balance of that are hunter-gatherer, forager people who covered a much wider expanse of land. And so their sacred mountains might be at a greater distance at certain seasons, or they might have sacred mountains for different seasons. Um, so a different sense of what it is to be, um, what is sacred land or what is my land, this kind of thing. And then, you know, do we lose indigeneity when we migrate either by choice or not by choice, or because of marriage, or because of kidnapping, or adoption. Like, there's so many what-ifs. And so I guess I, what I'm proposing through, and not even that I'm proposing, but what seems to be coming through the body is, how can we stand in indigeneity from no matter where we are? So when I go to visit relatives in New Zealand, when I go visit relatives in like, like and using relatives in, the, in a broad sense, um, where where am I relative to my indigeneity? Now I've heard some amazing, powerful um, uh, speakers talk about how their religion, for example, cannot be practiced anywhere but on on you know in their specific land base, and I have a huge amount of respect for that. But what? If you're not there, mm. how do you find that sacredness? How do you find that connection? And one of the things that I've been doing with Dancing Earth is wherever we go in the world where we're invited to teach or to choreograph, we ask, who are the original people of the land that we're going to? And then we um, offer a ceremony of uh, permissions when we get there, a cultural protocol. There are places we've gone where that has been not practiced in such a long time that it's not it's almost outside of collective memory and where tears come running down the faces because they're like, nobody's asked for so long. We don't even remember how we're supposed to receive. Wow. Um, but we know that this, this was once in place. And so we're going to use the, you know, you start to remember or your instincts kick in and what is memory, but you know, that, you know, remembering what instincts there were that became rituals that became more formalized. 
And so, so first starting there, like, um, because I think maybe the, if you just go to, okay, well, I can be indigenous anywhere I, I go, um, maybe based on, uh, sort of tuning in, I'd like to say that that can be possible, but I also want to respect who was there before you mm. and what, what is their, what, is, what are their opinions on the matter? And then what would their version be of how can you be a respectful steward and um, caretaker of this earth that they know so well? So standing in relation to all of that. So it's standing in relation to what's around you, human, non-human, and relationship to what's past and what's pu- future. So, you know, rolling that time around you in a nonlinear way. And I'm looking at those things because a lot of our work is on the road. New Mexico is one of the poorest states in the nation. So for us to make a living, we're on the road a lot. And rather than this um, prototype of a scavenger that's just, you know, taking here and there, that's not what our original foraging people were. So if this is a an expression of foraging, foragers we're trying to leave no trace, to leave the less, the least impact, to not drain any one place of resources, to go with goodwill and good energy, um, to have something to give, whether it's a song or a medicine offering or leaving um, some food, you know, at a place where you've received something. So this constant state of exchange wherever you go. So I'm looking at this idea of migration and this idea of, you know, what is indigenous reality prior to reservation lines being drawn, prior to the lines of states, prior to the lines of countries. I, I've, I've seen um, one of my protégés is Purépecha, and he was um, cast in a big film, and he had huge number of fans across the world online, and they were like, well, who is this? You know, someone there said, well, why is this Mexican being cast as an American Indian? Which, you know, just by using that term, you can tell where they're coming from. <laughs> and what was beautiful about that is that there were enough knowledgeable people online to say, actually, you know, the border crossed them, you know. And, awesome. you know, this Tur- they were, Tarasco was their other name. Like, you know, people who had long, long traditions of long journeying and sharing and trading and intermarrying um, before those borders were in place. So how do we consider that mm. as well as, you know, protection of specific land areas. And, you know, these are our sacred mountains and they cannot be drilled on. You can't, you know, get uranium, you know, there's specific needs for that. But um, kind of casting this idea of indigeneity in a broader way that can allow more people to have a sense of accountability to the original people and the place and the future of any particular land, air, water that they are finding themselves um, honored by being in for any amount of time. And accountability to themselves, too. I think that the lack of indigeneity within people, specifically in America, because that's where I live, is what is so destructive about us. We don't have we don't have any repercussions that we can feel because we are so disconnected from place. Absolutely. And then, you know, so if you're disconnected from your origin place, which guess what? A lot of native people have been too. like people always Mm -hmm. expect that. Oh, when my, you know, Oh, that your dancers, they, you know, they've got all of this. I was like, you know what? It has not been a continuous link for many of them. They have had to (laughs) fight and and ask questions and travel and research and dream and trust themselves to get to where they are mm. to re- recover and revive and renew and recreate these, some of these knowledges. In some cases, it's been more continuous. And for those people who have been able to have continu- continuity, it was also at a huge cost of <laughs> like you know protection and fighting and uh, you know insulating and hiding and. Um, uh, you know, going underground to be able to have that continuous link. So yeah, it's not an easy, easy pathway. And, you know, I've seen beautiful cases of people that uh, might have encountered a workshop of mine. And then years later, they're introducing themselves um, in, in, in uh, Gaelic or something, because they finally done some research like, hey, guess what, you know, um, in one, and then in other cases, um, maybe it has to do with them finding it through a more um, less in terms of going back in time to what was to becoming great allies of um, the the original c- 
caretakers of the land that they're living on, becoming great allies and helping steward that land as environmental protectors, for example, or as farmers or as herbalists. But, you know, I especially appreciate that when it's done in relationship and in, in yes, in, in relationship and or in harmony. <laughs> um, <laughs> harmony, yes. Yes. <laughs> But by relationship, I mean, it can be a, a negotiated space. It can be, you know, there's there's a, a lot of ways to be in relationship. And sometimes people um, might read harmony as a sort of one-note thing. But I think harmony, it's like seasons. It's like permaculture. It creates constant tending. So, mm. uh, And yeah. do you feel like the term indigeneity um, is a little bit more elastic and allowed more room to shift and grow as as we do as humans? I think so. I think it does. And perhaps it's because it's a newer term and maybe it's a newer term that speaks to something that is, I mean, I I think it's speaking to something that people, that there's been a lack of. And so we finally create these terms when we have no choice, but like, it's a critical mass. Like, okay, now what is this? I find that all the time and I'm starting to say it more and more in rehearsals. Like, I don't think we have a word for it yet, whether it's a color or a scent or a feeling or a, um, a sense of time. Like, ah, yeah, we haven't gotten that far yet, (laughs) but we have movement. (laughs) We have the movement to speak what that is. advice would you give that you wished you had received earlier on in your career that you could pass on to other other artists who are kind of beginning that that mountain oh that's a really really good question I think the advice is that there's something special inside of you that only you have and when you're, whatever you're making, whatever you're doing, whatever you're creating, if you can find that bit of yourself to put in there, um, I, I was going to say, you know, if you know what that is uh, or try to know what that is, but sometimes you don't even have to know what it is. It's just this, like putting yourself fully into the process, which has to do with passion. It has to do with discipline. It has to do with not giving up. It has to do with knowing that there's a your spirit is invested in this. Your spirit is a part of what you do and who you are. And so you can't, you can, you can be, I mean, I guess that's what makes me so, um, you know, I, 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 like there is a don't take things personally when you don't get this or that. I'm like, well, I take it personally because my whole, everything is in there. And I think it's okay to not be perfectly neutral and perfectly like no balanced about it all the time because you know you're you're giving so much and um I think in the course of really giving yourself fully into any particular project or vision um that's when you're going to really maybe it has to do with that reciprocity that's when you're going to see oh there's you know something something that I've made that only could exist because of me putting the time and energy and love into it. Um, and I, I think that maybe the world would be a better place if, if all, not just artists, but if everyone considered, what is this for me? What is this for the next circle and the next circle and the next circle? And considering that, I, I think, and sometimes, you know, we talk about it as sort of seven generational thinking in terms of indigenous philosophies, but, you know, maybe it's not even so much a time linear way. Maybe it's also like an ecological kind of um, reverberating circles, mm-hmm. um, because then maybe that helps helps us understand why we are in a certain place in a certain time and not somewhere else, because there's something that we're also impacting from where we stand right now. So I think I think those were the things that I would um, advise to people, um, and and that you can put that 
part of yourself, like let's say, you know, I was talking about particularly maybe discipline and devotion to an art form, but it can be in every everything that you do, you know, how you cook. And, you know, I, I just love, you know, people who yeah, dress in an individual, creative, very distinctive manner. I, I, I find that so exciting when you, it's like celebrating every day of life, like, oh, okay, today is the red and orange day. You know, <laughs> or some people might choose to, you know, not put their, their, um, their creativity there. It might be in some other forms, but we have that choice to live creatively in everything that we do. This is your soapbox moment, you know, your, your space. If you had one thing to say to the world, and this is your forum, what would you want to say? What message would you like to pass on? I would like to say to the world, believe that art can change the world because it has, it can, and it will. Solidarity. <laughs>